0: Today is our first day of the retreat, our first day of noble silence, the practice of the Dharma, the practice of meditation, going on a retreat like this, doing what we're doing here is a noble endeavor. So we practice noble silence in support of this noble endeavor. Goethe said, uh, that which is noble, a noble endeavor, is as difficult as it is rare. So probably at least the first part of that sentiment you can relate to after the first day of practice. The first day of practice is always uh, a challenge, uh, finding that rhythm, settling in, coming into silence. We consider this a noble endeavor, this silence, a noble silence, because it's in the service of awakening, developing our goodness, making this journey to the heart, this noble journey to the heart. So certain conditions support us in making this journey. Seclusion, silence are two of the most important conditions that the Buddha speaks to in making the path essential to the path we can think of silence as being an outer silence the Buddha speaks of it as or seclusion as seclusion or silence of the body and then there's the inner silence that we seek to develop uh, the silence of the mind really in order to develop the inner seclusion, silence of the mind, we need to develop, we need to, that needs to be supported with external seclusion, external silence. So, we are uh, practicing within these uh, conducive conditions of having external outer silence withdrawing from the noise of the world we always talk about this a lot right it's a noisy world out there in the world there's lots of beings lots of beings saying lots of stuff lots of beings saying lots of stuff and beings we know and beings we don't know uh, uh, lots of beings saying lots of stuff that's informed by aversion and desire, greed, hatred, and delusion, liking and disliking, views and opinions, need I go on. Lots of images, lots of images uh, that uh, contribute in, a, in an extraordinary way to the noise of the world, including sounds, uh, so much of this external sense experience that we are Subject to on a daily basis in the world is uh, Fraught with a an amount of dissonance as much of uh, This noise that we are subject to on a daily basis uh, We receive through technology So interesting in the last few years right there's sort of this dichotomy now which was always kind of there, but it now it's so much even clearer like there's the in-person world and the technological world, you know? So, you know, the in-person world can be quite noisy, and then there's this whole other world, which, you know, is really, we've kind of defined it as a whole other world, the world of technology. Uh, Television, computer, the phone, the internet. Um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about this in this talk. It's not meant to be a knock on technology, it's more about understood because it's this is the way that the world is I mean this is it we're in the technological age uh, but we have to learn how to relate to that skillfully otherwise the consequences for us individually and our culture are quite dire aren't they the thing about external sense experience of course is that uh, our tendency is to crave it this is one of the great forms of craving that we crave external sense experience, sense pleasure. And uh, when we are involved in this craving, it takes us away from ourselves. We lose ourselves. We lose the present moment. We lose the body. What it means not to be present means not to be in the body. So in the practice, we're making a journey to the body, back to the present moment, back to the present moment. This is what breath meditation uh, first and foremost is about, coming to the present moment by coming to the body. The skills the Buddha teaches us in breath meditation are in that service, so that we can be present, so that we can stay present, so that we can maintain present moment awareness throughout the course of our days. Too much sense experience, the kind of sense experience that we receive through technology takes us away from the body. Many, many years ago, uh, this was discussed uh, and uh, 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 talked about by uh, Marshall McLuhan, who was a Canadian professor, I think, at McGill University, and uh, in the 60s he was quite well known, even for myself as an English major in the, in the early to mid-70s. There were courses where we discussed McLuhan and McLuhan's ideas about technology. McLuhan, one of McLuhan's uh, ideas, theses, was that the technological forms, and mostly in his day, of course, he was talking about television and radio, you know, and he would talk, and he talked, of course, going even back to print media, being really the first technological form with the advent of the printing press, he called the technological forms extensions of the central nervous system, or separate central nervous systems that we create. Uh, The quite uh, uh, dramatic term that he used to describe the technological forms as uh, extensions of the central nervous system is self-amputations, self-amputations. And what he's saying, of course, is these technological forms take us away from the body. You know, we're amputating the body and replacing it with, with uh, you know, the computer and the television. Now, McLuhan said that, you know, we do this in large part so that we can uh, find relief from our stress and our anxiety, right? you know, we, or, you know, we use technology as a way to ostensibly uh, make life easier for us. But because it takes us away from the body, it actually creates more stress. And as we create more stress, then we have to amp up the technological forms and improve the technological forms and make them even more prevalent. So we see this so much today, McLuhan's uh, ideas have come to fruition so much, you know we started with the computer as a way of ostensibly having less stress, the computer would help us to have less stress and of course all the things the computer can do that we can engage ourselves with in terms of the various pleasures on the computer. Uh, But it only causes more stress, so you know it's not enough just to have that big, monstrosity of a desktop sitting on your on your on your you know on your desk or on your kitchen table you know you need a laptop because you need to be able to deal with that stress not just when you're sitting at your desk at home but you know when you go to the coffee shop or when you go on vacation and of course then the laptop isn't enough so then you need the phone so even when you're walking down the street you can be online so it's a vicious cycle Is what McLuhan said. What we're doing here is trying to come out of that cycle. And again, it's so interesting that McLuhan talked about this in the 60s, right? In the 60s. Today, of course, uh, there's just been this explosion of technology. What the futurist Alvin Toffler called the third wave. I don't know if anybody ever has ever read Alvin Toffler. His probably most well-known book is Future Shock one that a lot of people really like the most is called the third wave Toffler was uh, a boyhood friend of my one of my mentors uh, so I, I learned a lot about Toffler over the years and was encouraged to read Toffler by by my men uh, this one mentor I had uh, in my life early on one of my benefactors uh, they went to uh, they grew up together and went to Thomas Jefferson High School in Brooklyn you know and Toffler said there's, three, there's been three waves of technology. First was the agricultural wave. The second wave is the industrial wave. The third wave, the title of his book, the technological wave. And of course he predicted so many of these things you know, many years ago. I remember, this is probably over 30 years ago, it was very early 90s, 1991, 92. and remember this phone conversation I had with a dear friend of mine, my friend Jimmy Jimmy M, uh, I keep the names anonymous. so in, the, in case the recordings go out there, but uh, I was having a phone, talking with my friend Jimmy on, and you know Jimmy was kind of a, you know kind of up to speed on a lot of things that I wasn't. So we were talking on the phone and he said to me, this is like 91, 92, he said, you know, I've just been reading a lot about this thing called the World Wide Web, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like, you, you can, you can, you know, get on a computer and you can get, you know, tap into all this information and all this stuff and he's going on and on about what he read and I'm going like, this is never going to get off the ground, <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, this guy is completely, where did he get, where did he read this stuff, you know, I remember when I sent my first email? You know, our company—this was probably the mid '90s, mid to late '90s. We you know we got our first computers, and you know we got—we got, we got uh, must have been dial-up, obviously a dial-up modem. Nobody was really using it, but we got company emails, and nobody was using them at the time. But I said, you know, I'm going to try this. And my friend George lived in Philadelphia, a sales rep in Philadelphia, and he was pretty technologically up to speed. So I'm going to try sending George an email, you know, so I, go, I didn't really know how to do it. I'm, hey George, welcome to the information superhighway, I'm pretty sure that's what I said. And it was like, is this thing going to work? And it was like my Alexander Graham Bell moment. <laughs> is it actually going to work? Is he going to get this email? I don't remember if he actually got it. <laughs> you know, it's like now I have four email accounts, I have four email addresses. You know, and, and as I get another one, it's just like another layer of stress that I'm adding to my life. It's like what's going to be on there when I, when I boot up the computer. You think of how my life was and our lives were, like when I was a kid, a teenager, you know, the, the only way you really could get in touch with people was by telephone. You know, like you know, your friends and things like that. And We didn't have answering machines in those days. You know, so it's like if somebody called and you weren't there, What bliss, what bliss, as the Buddha would say. So on this retreat, you know, we're practicing seclusion from technology. So important, you know, so important. This is why we emphasize it, not trying to give people a hard time, but it's so important to take this time uh, to practice seclusion from technology, seclusion from the noise of the world, and to come into noble silence so that we can come back to ourselves, so that we can come to the body so that we can come to the heart. So this seclusion, this silence is essential to the path. It's an essential cause, as I said, to developing the path to mental training. In the Panya Sutta, the Discernment Sutta, uh, the Buddha speaks about uh, certain causes, conditions, that lead to awakening, the development of the path. He talks about eight of them. And I'll just refer to the one that we're talking about, seclusion and silence. He says, monks, these causes, these requisite conditions, lead to the acquiring of the as-yet-unacquired discernment that is basic to the holy life and to the increased plenitude development and culmination of that which has already been acquired. And he lists these causes and conditions. And he says, having heard the Dhamma, he achieves a twofold seclusion. Seclusion in body and seclusion in mind. This is the third cause, the third requisite condition. Seclusion in body, that's really that external silence. Seclusion in mind, the internal silence. So there's challenges, of course, in developing noble silence and coming to uh, external silence, silence of body, seclusion of body. Uh, we really see this on retreat particularly at the beginning when we experience withdrawal you know withdrawal from external sense experience you know and there's wanting wanting external sense experience i would notice this a lot when i would go to white metta and uh, where there's a lot of renunciation of course in the monastery and i would spend a lot of time thinking about sense pleasures you know particularly like when i get back home i'm going to engage in this sense pleasure and that sense pleasure and all these different sense pleasures that I'm going to engage in when I get back home. So we kind of are faced with this question on retreat, what to do with the mind that is so often preoccupied with sense experience, that so often preoccupied with the phone, the laptop, the computer, what to do with the mind, when typically we seek to occupy the mind with sense experience just the way McLuhan said we seek to occupy the mind with sense experience so that we can alleviate stress what to do with the mind what to do with the mind this is what we're learning on retreat And retreat of course is just a microcosm of life you know so these things that we learn here on the retreat are very valuable, you know, in terms of our relationship to these technological forms, to the external noise of the world when we go back home. You know, we're learning. This is a place of learning. Uh, What we're learning here is directly applicable to what our lives are going to be like when we go back home. So, of course, our job here is we make an effort to put the mind on the breath as a way of coming to the body, coming to the present moment, try to establish a good home for the mind. But the mind resists, right? The mind resists. We all notice that today. We don't want to be present. We don't want to be present. We don't want to be in the body. Just like McLuhan described, we don't want to be in the body, so we create these technological forms. We don't want to be in the body because the body is a storehouse of pain. This is where we store our pain. You know, the cooks in the kitchen, store there the food in the cupboards we store our pain in the body that's one of the things about retreat is like you know it's like you don't leave your pain in the cupboard in your flat back in New York City you know you bring it with you it's in the body our physical pain our mental emotional pain and our existential pain the pain that's uh, just part and parcel of this experience of being human which in which we're subject to sickness, aging, and death. So again, McLuhan said we use these external experiences to take us from the body and the present moment. On retreat, we're cutting out a lot of the ways that we usually occupy the mind. Uh, The other primary way that we occupy the mind, of course, is by thinking. As Tanis Robiku said, a lot of our thinking is about or when we're engaging in sense pleasure uh, or we're in pursuit of sense pleasure or sense experience. you know, A lot of that process includes thinking about the sense experience. On retreat, we, uh, we lose the present moment. We lose the body. Uh, we seek to... Uh, remove ourselves from the present moment by uh, living in thought worlds or checking out or checking out going to sleep three primary ways that we lose the present moment sense experience thought worlds checking out so on retreat we're cultivating and again these are qualities that we want to cultivate in our lives, we're cultivating an outer silence, noble silence, external silence, the silence or seclusion of the body, and we're also cultivating an inner silence, inner silence, silence or seclusion of the mind, just like the Suda described. So, coming here, we're cutting down on the outer noise, but there's still an inner noise, and a good way to think about practice, Tan Nisarabhikaru talks about this a lot, uh, is we're developing silence on more and more refined levels. You know, so the most, the most coarse level of developing silence is, is the external silence, cutting out external noise. Uh, but as our practice develops, we're cutting out the noise and developing silence internally. And that's a process uh, that is, we're in a, that's in a stage of development. Uh, you know, it begins usually in meditation with, you know, the hindrances, hindrance of restless and restlessness in particular, the mind that's churning out a lot of thoughts. Uh, uh, so you know, we begin to start to put these hindrances to the side, the thinking to the side, uh, as the practice develops, uh, as the concentration develops. So you think of your concentration as a process of uh, more and more silence. You know, As concentration is developing, uh, the internal silence uh, is becoming more and more refined. So gradually there's less and less unskillful fabrication in the mind during the meditation. And then... Sort of the next level of development is there's even less and less skillful fabrication. When you get to the higher levels of concentration, you know, you need to use skillful fabrication to abandon unskillful fabrication. And then gradually you lessen the skillful fabrication as you develop concentration on deeper and deeper levels. The mind becomes very still and very silent. This is why what I was watching a lot on my retreat back in December, how uh, you know after you know five six seven eight days the mind was getting very still, and really the process of the concentration developing was it was more and more silent in the mind, you know to the point where towards the end uh, it was very very quiet in the mind. It wasn't completely silent, but it was it was it was very you know and it just was really struck me how. You know, this is how concentration develops. It's deeper and deeper levels of silence. You know, when we're in a state of letting go, an awakened state, it's pure silence. You know, it's pure silence. Yeah. There's just body, heart, wisdom, love. You know, there isn't even the thought, I'm sitting here meditating my breath, right? It's just body, heart, wisdom, love, purity of heart, pure silence, pure silence. But we have moments when intimations of that, right? Even today, there may have been moments when you had an intimation of, you know, different levels of silence. See, these are the things to pay attention to, right? Pay attention to, and there may have even, I'm sure there were, if you notice them. If you notice that, moments when there was just that pure silence. Pure silence. So on retreat, uh, you know, we come, uh, we're in this place of noble silence, external silence. There's this inner noise, the thinking and the thought worlds, and we are practicing with that on retreat, right? So we're seeing the thinking. You know, we we learn to see the thinking on retreat. Uh, When we're sitting, we're practicing seeing the thinking. Uh, When you're walking, oftentimes that's a place where you even see the thinking more uh, in the walking meditation, partly because there's more context and more things to think about, partly and perhaps largely is because there's less of an opportunity to engage in the other way that we check out which is by falling asleep it's harder to fall asleep when you're doing walking meditation so you know so this just tends to be a lot of thinking but you know this is an opportunity of course for us to develop understanding so I would just see this I you know in my first few days of retreat to this day I mean the first few days of retreat it's sometimes it's it's startling how much thinking there is you know how the mind is just pouring out thought how the mind is just pouring out thought it can be astonishing because we just don't realize it right you know, and of course we're distracting ourselves with external sense pleasure but you know the mind that you're seeing you know that's pouring out thought I mean that's the mind you brought here you know the re- my teacher Christina Feldman used to say you know the retreat didn't cause that thinking. You know? You are know, seeing what the mind is like. You're seeing the lack of silence in the mind. So in the practice, you know, we're learning to take a step back, right? To, to a large extent, there's not you don't have to do anything, right? We talk about this a lot. We're just taking a step back. You know, that's the key movement. We're taking a step back and just observing that. Observing that. Oh, there's thinking, there's thinking, you know, we're observing it and we're making it a learning experience, right? So maybe today, you know, it's like, oh, all this thinking, all this thinking, or tomorrow, all this thinking, all this thinking, it's a learning experience, it's a learning experience. Another growth opportunity, another growth opportunity. We're learning, we're seeing what the mind is like. We're seeing what the lo- mind is like. We're seeing the lack of inner silence. We're seeing the untrained mind. We're seeing the untrained mind. Nothing brings us greater suffering, the Buddha said, than the untrained mind. Sometimes it's referred to as the wild elephant mind. right? Zen refers to it as uh, the monkey mind. Or you could call it the braying donkey mind, you know, or the bear in a compost mind. Yeah. I mean, it's no co- it's no coincidence that uh, through time, uh, this mind, this untrained mind, has been described uh, uh, using uh, animal-related metaphors. You know, uh, it's you know, it's the animal mind. You know, it's the animal mind. You know, it's the mind that is, uh, you know, really a reflection of the animal brain. You know, it's, neuroscience tells us that you know the brain is 85 percent animal brain. You know, it's like the prefrontal cortex is a relatively new evolutionary development. You know, a lot of your brain is that animal brain. You know, it's that bear and the compost brain. It's that wild elephant mind. But we can train the mind. You know, we can train the mind. The Buddha said the mind can be trained, and there's nothing that brings us greater happiness than the trained mind. That's bhavana, mental training. This is the path. You know, animals can't train the mind. You know, the bear... You know, he's like, uh, you know, maybe today I'll do a little breath meditation, you know. I'll try to bring some insight to my proliferating thoughts about the compost, you know. you know, It just, the bear is just completely driven by the animal brain, the wanting and not wanting brain. I want this, I don't want that. And that's it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Sometimes... We're not that different, right, than the bear and the compost, in terms of the way that we think. So our training includes seeing, you know, this wild elephant mind, the bear and the compost mind, taking a step back and observing, and observing, and letting our innate wisdom understand. This is something, of course, that we talk about a lot, and I'll talk about a lot on this retreat. You know, just taking a step back. And trusting in our innate wisdom to understand, to understand, you know, the problem that we often have when we look at our thinking in meditation, on retreat, wherever, is that we're using the same mind to understand. The untrained mind right we're using the untrained mind to try to understand the trained, to train the mind right so in other words we're using the bear and the compost mind to train the bear and a compost mind it doesn't work right i don't want to have these thoughts i want to think this i want peace i want silence i don't want to be engaging in all these thoughts we're using that mind to try to train the mind, and try to understand the mind. So there's no way out. So we have a deeper wisdom. We have a deeper wisdom. You know, we're learning to rely on a deeper wisdom. We tend to rely on a lesser wisdom. We rely on a le- lesser wisdom. You now, of course, Western culture has sought to develop the human mind. You know, humans have sought to develop the human mind. Western culture, of which we're a part of, has sought to develop the human mind. Uh, you know, we might characterize uh, the processes that uh, Western culture uses to educate the mind as intellectual you know we're trying to develop ourselves intellectually so in our culture the emphasis is on the kind of education we get in school you know, the institutions of our higher learning any college graduates here you know, developing this intellectual understanding you know? I mean I always love the way the Thai Ajans talk about that you know or the or the, or the you know the Asian Buddhist teachers. You know it's like Western man, very educated. And yeah, look at the world. Look at the world he's created. You yeah. know all that education. You know all that Ivy League, all that money going to those Ivy League schools. You know look at the world. Yeah, Western intellectual thought has created. Larry Rosenberg, uh, founder of Cambridge Insight Meditation, tells that well-known story about talking to this Korean Zen master and saying, and the Korean Zen master, you know, he thought the world was flat, you know, he was uneducated, right? He was uh, awakened, but he he thought the world was flat. Uh, Happy, you know, happy human being, but he thought the world was flat. He was uneducated. Larry was, like, trying to convince him the world was round, and... The Zen Master said, he said eh, "Maybe you're right. I don't know." He said, "He said, you know, you guys are much more educated than we are. But look at your world. You know, look at the look at how you live. Look at look at how you live. You know, what I would submit is most of the problems that we have in the world are the product of thinking of highly educated the thinking of highly educated people. You know, all the wars." all the things that are wrong in the world, you know, most of that is, you know, that's been all the product of the thinking of, you know, people that, who went to these institutions of higher learning. I could go off on that for, for a really long time and I won't, but it's all, it's all food for thought, right? It's all food for thought. You know, there's nothing more dangerous than a really educated person with an untrained mind. You know, in other words, a mind that's prone to wanting and not wanting, greed, hatred, and delusion. The best and brightest, yeah. So when it comes to thinking, the Buddha's wisdom that we apply to our thinking begins with seeing, just seeing the thinking. You don't have to do so much, right? Just see that you're proliferating thoughts as you're out there doing your walking meditation tomorrow or tonight or as you're in your room. Try to take a step back and just see that there's thinking in the mind and let your innate wisdom understand. Your innate wisdom is what understands dukkha, what understands suffering, what understands how the heart is blocked. So in our practice, we take a step back, we let our innate wisdom understand what it is that we're doing that causes, is causing suffering. We let our innate wisdom understand the thinking, we let the heart understand, and we allow the heart to respond. And the heart's response is, is compassion, is compassion. So we take a step back from our thinking, and you know, we look at it, and we say, oh, look at the mind. Look at that thinking, and the heart responds with compassion. The wish that we have to be free from our suffering. When we see clearly the mind, when we see the thinking in the mind, when we take a step back, the heart responds with compassion. Compassion is the skillful response. So, as we are on our retreat, can we? a step back from the thinking observe it with space let our innate wisdom understand it and allow the heart to respond with compassion it's really not like you you responding with compassion you know it's like you know that's using again you know the thinking mind that got us into all this of a fix in the pro- in the first place it's let the heart respond we take a step back it's like oh, look at that so painful so painful the wisdom and compassion are what heal the mind and heart so in our practice we're mindful of the breath right you know, we're, we're seeking to put the mind in a good place on the breath keep the mind on the breath and we're alert you know so that's that's the safe home for the mind good home for the mind refuge for the mind on the breath And then we're alert to the thinking, right? When the thinking arises, right? We're alert, we're alert, we're paying attention, right? Mindfulness has to be paired with alertness. Our thoughts arising. Am I getting caught in thought? And then we're ardent. You know, we're determined to stay with the breath and not give in to the thinking. Now, ardency is supported by wisdom and compassion. So we can support ardency by bringing insight to the thinking. Buddha said there's no concentration without insight. So we develop this insight by observing the thinking and questioning it. This is why is attention reflecting on the thinking. So we question the thinking. Is it useful? Is it useful? Is it serving me? Is this the most compassionate course for me to be following engaging in these thoughts, we ask the question and let the heart understand, and let the heart understand. Let our innate wisdom relate to what we're observing. The heart understands the drawbacks in the thinking. The heart understands dukkha. The heart understands the karma of this thinking, you know, that you're bending the mind in a certain direction by thinking in the way that you're thinking. You know, the untrained mind, you know, the untrained mind, you know, the bare and a compost mind. How does that relate to the thinking, judgment? Shouldn't be having these thoughts. Why are you having these thoughts? Frustration. I keep engaging in this thinking aversion. I don't like these thoughts. Doubt. I can't do this. I don't want these thoughts. I want peace. That's the untrained mind trying to fix the trained mind trying to train the mind trying to fix the mind you know that's the bear in the compost mind trying to train the bear in the compost mind so we have a capacity for wisdom you know this is our human potential you know this is this is the greatest aspect of our human potential our potential for wisdom and compassion you know the donkey doesn't have that donkey doesn't have that innate wisdom we also have a mind that if we use it skillfully, you know, if we use its skillful potential, it will guide us to the wisdom in the heart. Right? It'll guide us to our innate wisdom. You know, that's what the Dhamma is about. That's what the teachings are about. Dhamma talk, teachings of the Buddha. You know, the Buddha's teaching us how he's not he's not teaching us how to have wisdom. You already have wisdom teaching you how to get to it. We call that skill. It teaches skills so that you can get to your innate wisdom. You can use your mind skillfully to get to the heart and your innate wisdom, but you have to use your mind skillfully to get to the heart. The bear in the compost mind is not going to get you to the heart. Nobody's going to want to take out the compost on this retreat, I can tell at this point. So the heart relates to this thinking with wisdom and compassion. This is the potential of the heart. This is the potential of the heart, wisdom and compassion. Ultimately, and you've heard me say this before, ultimately you stay with the breath out of wisdom and compassion. Only then is concentration fully developed when you stay with the breath out of wisdom and compassion. It starts off, you're just forcing the attention onto the breath, right? There's some wisdom, perhaps. You know, the more you develop wisdom because you've asked the question, is it useful, and you've learned to let the heart understand it, the thinking, the more you develop wisdom in terms of understanding in the heart, the drawbacks of the thinking, and the more you develop compassion for yourself the more you're going to be able to stay with the breath. Because ultimately you stay with the breath out of wisdom and compassion. This is why it's so important to develop that skillful attitude in the meditation, an attitude of compassion. I'm staying with the breath out of compassion, out of love for myself. So the outer silence, the noble silence is crucial, but we're moving supporting us in our efforts to move towards an inner silence and a deeper and deeper levels of inner silence we use the mind skillfully that's directed thought and evaluation that's using the mind in a skillful way in the service of awakening on the service of getting us to the heart uh, first we have to get to the body right so we use the mind to get to the breath we develop this home for the mind, a good home for the mind, a place where the mind wants to be, instead of being in those thought worlds, right? In those thought worlds. We understand that being in that thinking isn't a good place to be. We understand the drawbacks. And we start to cultivate, using the mind skillfully, a good place to be, a good home for the mind that's easeful, pleasurable, a place that's amenable to the mind. Gradually the mind recognizes the benefit of staying there. And it stays there stays there the more it stays there the more silence the more silence gradually less and less fabrication less and less for you don't need the fabrication eventually you don't need it because the mind wants to stay there the mind understands this is the place to be the mind understands your potential there's less interest in thinking and thought worlds So we're coming to silence coming to silence is an act of wisdom and compassion so develop this perception develop this perception you're staying with the breath out of wisdom and compassion it's an act of compassion develop this quality of intent it's not an idea it's something you know in the heart it's like I'm doing this out of compassion the more you say that the more you incline to that understanding the heart begins to you begin to connect to the heart you know, this is something that I'm doing out of compassion. it's no longer an idea. it's something that you know. It's something that you embody that quality of intent. So our task is to know silence is to know silence, to know what it's like to know what it's like. to start to notice it and labeling it, developing that skillful perception, Is extremely useful. This is silence. This is silence. This is a skillful fabrication. This is skillful use of the mind. This is silence. This is silence. As you go through the day, as you go through these eight days, this is silence. Noticing silence, developing that perception. skillful use of the mind you're guiding yourself through your days this is what we're learning to do we're learning to use the mind skillfully to guide ourselves through our meditation through our days on retreat and through our lives you know, these are all skills for life so that you can guide yourself when you're out there in the world you know and there's the option of uh, you know being on the phone or whatever and there's You know, and the other option is silence. You've learned to identify silence. You've learned to know silence. I have a choice. This is freedom. I have a choice. I have experienced silence. I know it. I can turn to it. So this is using the mind, guiding ourselves through the day, using the mind skillfully, instead of trying to. Guide ourselves through the day using the bear and the compost mind. You know, this is what we this is what we do, right? Can you see that? You know, it's like you know we come to the meditation retreat, but we're guiding ourselves through the meditation and through the day with the bear and the compost mind. You know, at lunchtime I was uh, a delicious lunch. What was it? A stuffed butternut squash. You know, I had my big. Big squash, you know and I, a bunch of rice and oh, it was so good you know and I was so full, you know and I started I walked back in the kitchen to kind of put my dish back in the you know to bust my tray as they used to, we used to say and put my and I walked past the table and there was like this a couple left. I was like I want that. I want one more. I was totally full you know it's like I've got to have that. I want, and I started to, you know, that's the bear in the compost mind, right? It's like, I want that. I want that squash. I know there's only one or two left, and I don't think the cooks have eaten yet, but screw them. I want that. You know? And it just struck me, you know, and it's like, there's the bear in the compost mind, right? The wanting mind. You know, you know, the evolutionary leap is not that far, you know, from the bear, you know, to, to, to the yogi. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's the, that's the animal brain right that's the mind that wants 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 doesn't want doesn't want doesn't want you know, we don't usually talk much about rebirth and I, I won't get into that you know I don't usually speak too much about that uh, notions of rebirth uh, but you know as food for thought no pun intended perhaps there's a little bit of a pun intended there Uh, You know, there's no guarantee, you know, there's no guarantee that if you're, uh, you experience your next rebirth and that finds you 50 years from now at Powell House, there's no guarantee that 50 years from now you'll find yourself at Powell House as a yogi. Think about that. This is a fortunate birth, you know? this is a fortunate birth, you know, look at all those animals, you know? it's so difficult to be in that animal, reign, animal realm, you know, the bear has to go root around in garbage, you know? I mean it, 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 this is a very fortunate birth, very fortunate birth, we want to make the most of it, we want to make the most of it, we have this potential of this human mind and this human heart But it's about, that's why we're doing what we're doing, right? You know, it's like when I first came to this practice, and I think it was on my first couple of retreats, and I had a sense, you know, there is a potential. You know, there is a potential here that, you know, I hadn't even considered before. You know, I have a potential as a human being, given the gift of this human birth. So this practice of knowing silence begins with moments, begins with knowing moments of silence, small moments, small moments, the practice of knowing small moments in general, small moments, easy to miss, right? Those moments of silence, of stillness, they're there, but we miss them, right? We don't pay attention. It's easy to miss them when you're in the world. It's easy to miss them when you're here. It's easier here to notice them, though. So, you know, when you're here, this is an opportunity to notice those small moments of silence. It's easy to discount those moments. We want a big experience. I came to this retreat. I want a big experience. I want a big experience. That's how I was for years coming to retreat. I want some kind of profound, dramatic experience. We like big experiences, that's the bear in the compost. Got to have something big! The practice of small things, being able to recognize and appreciate small things, is the mark of a well-trained mind, is the mark of an awakened mind, is the mark of an evolved mind. And then you're really using you know, your potential in terms of your human mind if you learn to be able to recognize and appreciate small things. Uh So notice the small moments of silence. Take care of those moments. I mean, one of the central aspects of the Buddha's law of karma is small things often yield big results, of course. You know, so those small moments of silence can be extraordinarily powerful, you know, the Buddha spoke to this again and again, one moment of silence is greater than a thousand moments of non-silence, one moment of peace is greater than ten thousand thousand moments of non-peace, one moment of dhamma is greater than a thousand moments of non-dhamma. So it's from these small moments that the path unfolds. Let's just close our eyes for a second.